guys and goyles, welcome once again to Hit Different, the greatest podcast you're currently listening to. I'm joined today by Milo Eastwood and Jeremy First. On today's program, we're going to be talking about the legacy of Ken West, a true provocateur slash raconteur slash entrepreneur. Milo will be chatting about Tyler, the creator, and other people sort of stopping gigs and what the protocol is when uh, someone throws some shit on stage. And then we're talking to Jeremy First, Applejack, music management, Cat, Teskey Brothers, Don, everything about his career. Friends, hit different. We've arrived. It's always nice to arrive here. It's three-way therapy. I will say that every time, and it's just a, a treat to have such a high caliber of guests. Unfortunately, this week we've only got Jeremy first. No, it's a treat to have such a high caliber of guests, and this week we have Jeremy Furs, leader of Applejack Management. Jeremy, talk to us. How are you? Hi, Mikey. I'm I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor. Thanks for just stepping up on a Monday morning. It's going to be a tight turnaround. Uh, Milo, I've I've done nothing with my day so far except just sort of schlep out of bed. Um, you've already done a three-hour PBS breakfast show. Breakfast spread, is this correct? Been up since five, came into the studio, smashed it out, did a nice little interview with Fen Wilson here in the studio this morning. He performed some songs for me. I'm feeling soothed and ready to go. Fantastic. That's the good energy. You're looking schmicko. Uh, now, Jeremy Furs. Just quickly, so you look after Liz Stringer, Little Quirks, and the Teskey Brothers. How are you feeling now? We are quote unquote post pandemic. Don't say it. Don't say it. We are absolutely not post pandemic. <laughs> we, we are deep in a, a minefield that is cancellations, postponements, changes of everything. So it feels very, very scary. Case in point, I've got my son testing positive this morning, which means yeah, I, won't be, I won't be able to join the band at Blues Fest this weekend. They're playing a headline slot Ugh. on Monday at Blues Fest, which was kind of, for me, a real, like, pinnacle, going to be a real pinnacle moment for the for them. They were going to do it two years ago. I've been looking forward to seeing this, this headline Ugh. slot for three years now. So it's a bummer that I'm going to be sitting at home on Monday night, but that's kind of the world we live in. I saw that Julia Jacqueline had shows blow out last weekend. She's moved it around. We've had the same with Liz Stringer. Somehow Little Quirks have done so much touring and so many things and still not been disrupted. We just went to South by Southwest with them and they played shows in Nashville and New York as well and and, um, we managed to get through that. So it's completely random. It's a minefield. And it feels like it's going to be going for a while in that fashion. So so we're having fun, but we're also on edge. Yeah. Are you part of that Facebook group that Maggie Collins invited me to, No Context Screaming Into the Void? Yeah, I discovered that one last week and and I just screamed with... I just, I just scrolled back at all the posts and everyone's just screaming into the void. I'm like, this is exactly how I've been feeling the last three weeks. So mm. thank you for, for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, come Monday when they're doing that show, are you going to be getting someone to FaceTime you in or are you going to be thinking about other things and living your best life at home? <laughs> I, uh, I I will have uh, my assistant there in Byron, so I'll probably do the FaceTime thing. I'm not a big fan of FaceTime and, and trying to be somewhere where you're not, but, but uh, I guess that'll probably happen 
on Monday night, given that I'll be sitting there, my family will probably be asleep by that point, and I'll just be sitting there on my own with a glass of wine in my hand, feeling sorry for myself. So yeah, that that could be a could be a little moment. <laughs> I don't know whether it's going to make it better or worse. I think the latter. <laughs> no, I think it's going to make it worse. <laughs> Jesus, you see, you've seen their set before. Maybe you can go to bed a little bit earlier than normal. <laughs> that's right that's oh it's right. tough dude uh, at least they've landed that you know it's a plum gig to be headlining that's you know that's a mega mega moment mm. yeah it's great it's great and and you know they've they've uh been having a good time themselves they've played some shows already this year we're super grateful for that and you know i was actually listening to your chat with well richie mcneil um mm-hmm. the other day and you know he's had a he's had a hell of a time mm. in covid and and you finally have to isolate for one week that's bloody nothing compared to you know his long COVID yeah. scenario and 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 what other people have gone through so i'm 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 like to keep perspective that's about that right COVID. you've always had a very sanguine outlook so we appreciate that friends let's chat about ken west it sort of took us all by surprise here we go after this bit of music Ken West has passed away peacefully, age 63, uh, one of the founders of The Big Day Out, along with Vivian Lees. Lees and West, they just had a bit of yin and yang. They had some absolute uh, tension between them, creative tension. They had uh, indefatigable attitude towards work and towards creating something that's still talked about, you know, in very hallowed terms, The Big Day Out. Uh, we wish everyone connected with Ken really, really well and hope you're all grieving together. I remember going to the Big Day Out. First time I went to the Big Day Out, I walked in. Kurt Cobain had only recently uh, passed from this mortal coil and Fred Negro was on a side stage with his band, the Fuck Fucks, singing, do some drugs and blow your head off. And <laughs> it, was a, it was a very confronting thing to come into and it was incredibly punk and I was like, I have arrived at somewhere I want to be. This is edgy. This is dangerous. This is mental. Uh, and I had the most extraordinary day, you know, and um, I went and saw Underworld, Basement Jacks, and had a, kind of my first boiler. I think this is pre-dabbling. It's always fun. It's always better to imply drug taking as opposed to saying, oh, I took drugs. So I think this is before I'd ever sort of dabbled in the uh, the dark arts, more the light arts. The whole the whole day is stuck in my mind. I remember seeing someone throw a bottle at Tim Rogers. He ducked it and he gave the guy the finger and just kept, you know, kept playing snout while playing spider bait. Everything about about it, I just felt this. Like, I just felt like I'd arrived in somewhere that I was meant to be, and I definitely am my happiest when I'm at a, at a music festival. What are your some of your memories of, of Big Day Out? Firstly, jazz and any kind of connection as well with, with Ken West. Oh man, well, I mean, Ken West. You'd have to say this legacy is just enormous. Um, I wasn't really aware of him or Viv. At the time, because I was, you know, 14 through to early 20s when I was going to Big Day Out and I just was going and watching these bands and, you know, I didn't really think about how important it was at the time, of course, but it basically shaped, you know, my love for music. I, don't, I would like to say that um, Meredith probably has shaped more my taste in music these days, a um, bit more eclectic, but... You know, these formative years, 
Um, you know, last week I was kind of uh, reflecting on on Ken West's career and on the Big Day Out times, and I looked back at Wikipedia on the the list of lineups to sort of see, oh, when did I actually go to this thing? And and I realised I'd been to about twelve wow. of them, starting in '97 when I was fourteen, and I saw the Offspring. Oh yeah. It's the only thing I remember from this day is seeing the offspring and and I got to go because my brother was taking me along and they were about to release Six Nay on the Ombre, I think, and it was just like the most incredible thing that I'd ever seen and it was massive. And then, yeah, I think the next year they had the year off and then after that from 99 through to 2004 or five, I think I went pretty much every year and um, just, yeah. It's just so incredible how many huge and amazing artists we got to see all in the uh-huh. one day. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it, it was my introduction to electronic uh-huh. music for sure. Like I didn't have any other, I didn't go to clubs or, you know, do do that stuff, but it was the one annual day when I would just go and like, yeah, see Basement Jacks see happy mondays i got into cut copy definitely through day out um and then you know i also saw uh artists like i mean jurassic five was the first oh, hip-hop yeah. artist i ever saw that was a big day out um i remember seeing you know joe strummer um and then uh, that sort of introduced me to who the clash were Jeez. and then you go backwards that way um, I'm still a PJ Harvey fan and I've seen her a couple of times, I'm sure, at the big day out. Um, I think the one thing that I most remember was seeing the Manic Street Preachers, I reckon, in 99. Um, and at the time, I think they just had, like, one song on Triple J. And I'm like, all right, I'll go check this out. And it was like a full set of just hugely melodic bangers that that are when it turns out they're massive and all these songs were just hits in the uk but they just weren't very big here at all and it was like wow you can actually do huge melodic rock songs and that for me was really interesting because i think you know at the time, all my friends were listening to Korn, <laughs> friends were Rom, and I had—I I did love that stuff, but I also was sort of like there was definitely a more melodic bone in my body that wasn't being pitched <laughs> or whatever you say, and and so they would all sort of run off and go and watch Korn, and then I would like split off and go and watch the Flaming Lips or Manic Street <laughs> Preachers or something like that, and 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 the Aval- the Avalanches set, um, I think in two thousand one was like just incredible um and it's just yeah it was just cool because you could peel off from your mates go and see something else and then you know join back up have another red bull and keep going um that's definitely my introduction to red bull (laughs) uh, the the big day out very true (laughs) drank so much of that stuff And then I went to the last one in in 2014, I think it was, and Pearl Jam played, and it was like, I'm so glad I did this. I took the day off work, went down, watched Tame Impala, watched Mud Honey, watched Pearl Jam, and it was kind of like a nice bookend because I, mm. I'm you know lifelong Pearl Jam fan, and and to sort of see that last one go down and and see Pearl Jam close the stage, it was just like. 
uh, I felt so complete, and I was so yeah. sad that it didn't that the big day out shut down. But I, I was so glad that I went to that last one. And Eddie was swinging out, wasn't he, on those ropes? He was sort of swinging out over the crowd. It looked, yeah, looked a little dangerous. He's still being a rock star. Yeah, he had a squeaky like vest on. <laughs> Yes. Which was really bad yes. of him, yes. but uh, it was he was also rocking out. Yeah, I loved it. Going back to the Offspring, I remember the, the most punk thing I've seen as well at the Big Day Out is Offspring said, everybody, we're going to help everybody clean. This is Dexter Holly's. We're going to help organize this cleanup today. Throw all your shit on the stage. So everybody threw all their <laughs> rubbish on the stage, just getting pelted yeah. with plastic bottles while they were doing, I think, uh, self-esteem maybe. And it was insane. It was like literally a torrential downpour of plastic bags, of empty Red Bull. Yeah. And it would have been a nightmare for the stage manager to clean up after that and the next band to get on and all that kind of stuff. But it was fucking amazing. It was just quite a sight. So, yeah. Milo? You probably couldn't get away with unleashing a whole bunch of plastic into the audience now, could you? <laughs> no. No. Um, Cancelled. Yeah, my memories of the Big Day Out, I, from a different generation of uh, Big Day Out goers, I sort of caught the, kind of the, the final third of the festival's legacy, I suppose. I remember seeing a very, very, very young Tame Impala opening the Orange Converse stage one year to maybe about, I don't know, 100 people or so. That was a pretty bizarre experience. Well, not at the time, not at the time, but looking back at it now. That was a really interesting one. Um, I definitely, uh, part of my introduction to electronic music, like uh, Jeremy, you were saying before, I remember seeing, uh, who did I see? LCD Sound System one year. That was pretty incredible. I hadn't Uh. actually, I didn't even know of them prior to that gig. I kind of just stumbled across it one day and just saw the most incredible set. My, I think my personal best memory of the big day out is uh, ditching my friends because Muse were clashing at the same time as Groove Armada. And mm-hmm. for some reason, I clearly wasn't hanging out with the right people because nobody wanted to go see Groove Armada. Um, so I basically <laughs> just bailed from my friends for the day, well, for the evening, went and saw Groove Armada, one of the most incredible shows I've ever seen put on. I was would have been like 16 at the time as well, and I was just absolutely getting loose with these, you know, kids in their early 20s who sort of welcomed me into their dance circle with open arms, had a pretty wild time, dead sober as well, um, and ended up catching the train back to the suburbs by myself just because I couldn't link up with anyone due to the uh, no reception that goes on at those things. But uh, definitely a huge uh, formative vibe for just kind of like discovering my independence with music. And I think it's a testament to the fact that the Big Day Out allowed 14-year-olds to enter a world like that because I'm sure that came with its own set of legal complications of letting in a crowd that young, you know? But yeah, respect to Ken West and the crew for uh, putting on such an inclusive uh, festival for people of all ages and all areas of musical taste as well. There's truly something for everyone at the Big Day Out and uh, I definitely experienced some weird, wacky, amazing and also terrible bands. Yeah. Phil Jamison said he lived a thousand lives in 64 years, 64, not 62, 64 years. He gave so much not only to me, but thousands of music fans. This is Phil from Grinspoon. Obviously, my first festival experience was 94, Big Day Out. I was lucky enough to play it over 20 of them. That's pretty wild, isn't it? I guess maybe they did the tour. They toured around. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. individual ones. Of course, of course. I thought they played 20 yeah. years in a row. That was a bit much. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be some kind of legacy, wouldn't it? Um. To put on something of this magnitude, because there was like seven stages, maybe more. It was, it was like so stupid, much going on. It was like stupid big. 
is I'm just but to, at, at no stage to go maybe we, maybe that's maybe we don't do that other stage everything obviously was yes let's do more let's make it you know give the punter more bang for their buck the lily pad was a whole other vibe if anyone listening like just triggers memories first time i ever saw um a man get an erection in public uh, dancing with a, a woman <laughs> probably the last time actually was literally walking past the lily pad this girl starts dancing with this guy on stage she strips off she has uh amazing cans she has two piercings in both nipples she has piercing in her fashina and this guy she's dancing with is basically he gets too excited. He's kind of like Jean Claude Van Damme on that on that TV show that time, and he kind of has to stop and turn away from the crowd. I found out later they paid strippers to come along and start dancing with the punters, dancing with people, <laughs> just for that reaction for that show. And I was I was nineteen at the time, so I was just like the most amazing free nudity I'd ever seen. <laughs> so that was sort of you know with all the duck pond is it duck pond is that his name. The mushroom tea, mushroom tea every night. Even speaking to Dizzy Rascal about, it, he's like duck pond man. He's a he's a geezer. He's a unit. He like just leave like instructions about where the party was, you know, under everyone's doors. The after party each night. Do you guys know about the secret duck pond party at a boogie festival that happens most years? I heard of. It, happen, it happens in the campgrounds at boogie no. festival in a uh, in a shipping container. It's in a similar but slightly different spot each year, and they kind of put on like a mini lily pad experience for punters after the uh, Hillbilly Disco closes down at about three in the morning for people who want to kick on to sunrise. Um, but Fantastic. yeah, but yeah, the lily pad. <laughs> what I said before about uh, being an all-inclusive experience for all ages probably a good call to put an over eighteen section on the lily pad. But they didn't enforce it that well. A, a very impressionable no. young sixteen-year-old me managed to get in one year, and uh, yeah, ex- horizons expanded. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> Unreal. Any lily pad memories, Jez? Well, they had it when it was at the showgrounds when I started going. They had it right inside the entrance, and it wasn't as big a deal at that point, but it definitely had the weirdness element. And you could just wander in, and it was kind of just like a chill out zone. But you'd be you'd be sort of sitting there, and then suddenly something really strange would happen, and someone would be wearing something very strange. And yeah, again, impressionable fourteen year old boys just kind of growing up right on the spot. It was amazing. Agree. And just encouraging you to be weird. Like, we all need to be weirder. Let's, mm. let's face it, we all need to just relax a bit more. Uh, Marie Cardi tweeted out a, a little thread um, after Ken passed saying, one year they, they were trying to get home. It was Paulie P, Glenny G and herself, and they ended up sort of hitchhiking, and they were having problems getting in. And someone picked them up in a van, and they were like, oh, man, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the Primus tour van, you know, Dare to Dream. And they said, oh, did you go to the big day out? And he goes, I, I put the bloody thing on. And it was Ken West. Ken West gave them a, just a lift into the city, wherever they wanted to go, just dropped them off. You know, after this huge, huge day where he would have dealt with hundreds of people, still had time to pick up three people, you know, grimy people from the big day out and drop them off. So I thought that was that. just a little thing like that. And, you know, just just I think it sums up. I'm, I never met the man, but I think that absolutely sums up um, what he was all about. So... Rest in peace, Ken West. I think it's um it's funny how festival organisers mainly, for the most part, go unacknowledged just because if they're doing their jobs properly, nobody really mm. has to know who they are. And uh, it's kind of unfortunate that throughout time that people mainly heard about who Ken West was due to things going wrong and him having to front the media over times mm. and stuff like that. But I'm re- really hoping that um his legacy goes down as uh, yeah someone who changed the face of Australian festival culture. 
I think so, but I think, that, totally. I think that's, yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's just, like, we could talk for hours and hours about even just a little story popped into mind. I mean, there was table tennis uh, competitions backstage and there was like tournaments and uh, Kane had to win Butler from Arcade Via versus Zach De La Rocha in the final from Rage Against the Machine. And it got really heated and Zach beat him like two, you know, right at the end by two points and when Butler stormed off in, in a bit of a huff and, and he wasn't happy. <laughs> even like, you know, the competition on the stage, he's going to smash, he's going to be the best band of the day and even competition back backstage. But I think it's all done with a, a wonderful camaraderie. And we're very, very lucky to have the, you know, the big day off, as they call it overseas, because people would love to come over here and, and tour around with it. So once again. I mean, imagine what some of these bands would have cost, you know, what their fees would have been in the peak of their careers, you know, Nine Inch Nails, Red Hot Chili Peppers, like some of the conversations Ken would have had where he's offering seven figures, you know, to an artist. It's just putting everything on the line. Yeah. Um, and so risky, so crazy risky. Mm. And, you know, it takes a certain type of person to be able to do that. Yeah, I think the, the Double J uh, podcast, which oh, about the Big Day, which, which, you know, Inside the Big Day, I covered it so well, showed that towards towards the end, Jez, towards the end, Milo, how much the the overseas agents really just kept pushing the price up, pushing Limp Bizkit, pushing the price up. And so the margins, you know, the, the pressure on every show to to sell 35,000, 45,000 in, in Sydney, etc. Um, yeah, I think it just got incredibly tense and wouldn't have been enjoyable towards the end as well when you literally like will i have to mortgage my home <laughs> unless we sh- shift another five thousand tickets on the door today oh fuck it's going to be you know 45 degrees you know all those all those things that are that add up to um to a very big risk and so we thank him for yeah for absolutely putting his balls on the line again and again and again pretty remarkable stuff friends in a moment milo was chatting all about uh the protocol of um accepting things that get thrown on stage rejecting things that get thrown on stage and uh and just the, i guess the danger of you know good intentions of fans and what actually happens when um someone throws a gift to an artist on the stage we're back milo man's been going since 5 a.m he's bopping his head he looks He's in the mode. I still got energy. My uh, mid-afternoon crash is still a few hours away, so we're gonna we're gonna push on through right now. Just quickly, how big did you go on Saturday night? Because I spoke to you just before the um, you were going to two parties on Saturday night. Yeah, hosted a house party at my house for the first time in about three years. Um, definitely made it to sunrise, and uh, oh, feeling God. a little bit today, but we're, we're going all right. I was on the vodka lime sodas all night, so I was hydrating as I was liquoring. Smart. Yes, absolutely. It's how it works. <laughs> but uh, yeah, good to be here. Lovely to have you two uh, here with me as well on the potty. Um, I want to talk about Tyler, the creator. He is no stranger to kind of stopping shows and having a little chat to the audience before. Definitely not the first time he's done this, but it kind of felt like, oh, so to set the set the scene and set the context, he's doing a show over in the States. Someone throws something up on stage. I'm not entirely sure what it was, but it was something obviously not that remarkable because he clearly didn't care for it very much, stopped the show and uh, kind of went on a bit of a rant talking about how he doesn't understand the logic between fans uh, throwing their things up on stage while he's performing, not really sure what their intentions are behind doing that because they're definitely not getting them back after throwing it on stage at a giant stadium show. Um, and yeah, he kind of like went on a bit of a rampage towards the crowd and almost like very directed at the person who threw it on there as well about saying that he, you know, he doesn't doesn't want their shit, basically. Which I don't want your shit. 
<laughs> honestly quite fair enough you know he's a he's a man of uh success and uh you know many riches he probably doesn't need a fan's sweaty t-shirt or cap or you know phone case being thrown up on stage but it kind of like yeah brings to the question what do you what do you do as an artist when things are just being thrown at you up there all the time so i'm sure you get to a certain point in your career and you just uh yeah, it's kind of hard to be humble about it anymore. And it kind of starts to piss you off more than it um, makes you feel good about yourself that fans, you know, want you to have their shit, as Tyler, the creator, said. Um, but, yeah, have you guys ever been at a show and felt so inclined to throw something up on stage? I've thrown stuff on stage at a Beck show where I threw a um, Devil's Air Cut era 1998 at the Forum and I it was just a little cowboy man, a little cowboy figurine, green cowboy figurine. And I threw it on stage thinking he was going to pick it up or, you know, notice it. And instead someone threw up a pack of Panadol and he picked that up and started singing to the pack of Panadol and showing it to the audience, which is like perfectly back. <laughs> Jess, how about you? Have you ever been compelled to uh, throw something on stage because you're in love with an artist? No, I can't think of a time when I have actually. I'm usually too far from the stage to be able to make the distance with anything that I've got in my hands. But, but I have seen things thrown on stage you know for other artists and artists that i work with and i mean it's weird how much underwear features on this front um Talk i don't know us. how or why it's happening but it just happens it's happened a couple of times at testy brothers i've seen it happen to other artists as well i just don't know how that's that what sort of reaction the the thrower is hoping for with that but we, tom jones it, to blame um, we have tom jones to blame yeah i think so I kind of loved that Tyler moment, though. I watched it on Twitter and I was just like, this is so funny because it's just like this is one of probably many things that regularly happens in his weird life that he just has to put up with all the time. Like when you reach that kind of level as an artist, you're getting hounded, you know, on the street or, you know, people must just say things to you. You jump in a taxi, that driver's going to just, ask you some weird question or whatever it is and and you you have to deal with this stuff all the time and just sort of put it aside but like occasionally someone will crack and just like lose it and just like call it out or something and it's funny when artists do it because um you know i feel for them just it's a combination i reckon of a whole lot of different weird things that go on in his life um you know it's funny how much fans ask artists for favors through instagram on you know in the in the dms it's just like you know can you please write a song for me and um and my and my fiance and could you also come over and perform it at our wedding that'd be amazing and and it's just like (laughs) right (laughs) sure sure we'll spend all the time in the world doing that for you it's one of those things because there are stories of people actually following through on that sort of shit and people go, you know what, maybe maybe I'll be the person to actually get through to that. But like nine, like 99 times out of 100, that request is just absurdly ridiculous and it's not happening. Do you shield your acts? I'm, I'm guessing Teskies are the main ones. You, you get those kind of requests. From. How do you shield them from that, Jez, and how do you let people... How do you let people down gently and especially when, say, suicide kind of stuff comes up and, that you know, the darker kind of stuff and terminal illness and all of that can play into these requests? Yeah, I mean, definitely we sort of, we we like to keep engaged with the fan base on socials. So 
I'm always encouraging artists to to reply to things when fans are reaching out if they want to. But if they get a weird one like that, you know, just let it through to the keeper and maybe we'll send through just a canned response saying, "Oh, sorry, the you know they're super busy and no time for this, but 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 thanks for listening or whatever." That stuff is nice to do. I think probably. You know, you reach a certain level where the, the DMs get so insane that you, you couldn't possibly reply to everything. You know, Little Quirks are an interesting one because they're a young band and three led by three women who are um, very, very approachable and that's the show that they put on. That's how they present themselves. And, and so even more than Teskies, people feel compelled to reach out to them and ask them all sorts of weird questions and um, invite them to do all, re- all sorts of weird things, mostly appropriate stuff, I must say, but but occasionally it's also inappropriate, and so you've just got to be really careful and and sort of try and shield the artist from that. Mm-hmm. And men love giving their opinion about how uh, female artists should, should just uh, alter their careers and do something a little different, don't they? They do. They impart that wisdom on the reg and 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 we we like to shoot it down we just we you know we take the piss out of those kind of people because it's because it's fun and it puts them back in their place mm. um yeah it can, it can be dangerous as well chucking stuff on stage to go like, kanye there's a whole list youtube clip after the youtube clip of the day josh where's josh because like some josh through his his um his business card on stage he gets josh and all josh's mates kicked out of the gig yeah, for a while there, it was just really like, like stopping shows for 10 to 15 minutes, just the kit, all these people kicked out, gone, real kind of weird power play. I mean, yes, at the same time, like if someone slips over and, you know, Kanye was going up on these crazy platforms, like, you know, these raised three meter things that would come up out of the uh, out of the stage. It is freaking dangerous. You've got to be careful. I apologize to Beck from, from 1998 as well. Uh <clears throat> <laughs> they must like once you get to like a Billy Eilish level, etc. You must, must receive a deluge of fan art and 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 gifts every week. It'd just be no, no. It'd be it'd be incredibly flattering and, and great and everything. But how would you get through it all? You know, sort of like um, uh, Ringo Starr on The Simpsons when he finally responds to Marge's letter, <laughs> like many many years later. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because that's a real life thing that happened. I don't know if he does it anymore, but Ringo Starr did have a P.O. box that you could send stuff to and he would once a month go through it all and read it and listen to it and do all of the above. I'm not sure in the uh, era of uh, COVID whether he still has the the P.O. box or whatever, but um, yeah, definitely the thing that Ringo was doing for a while there. Jeremy, like with the Teskies, like surely surely people come up and just like pour their heart out to them from time to time. How How do they deal with that sort of thing? I mean, I think it's really interesting that People come up and say, look, this song saved me or this got me through such a hard time in my life because that is a lovely thing to hear as an artist and I've talked to the guys about this, but it's also kind of scary because you then suddenly feel a little little bit more responsible for how things are going in other people's lives and, you know, who else is in a similar boat and, and... and needing a song or needing something to help them get through it, you start to think about your role in other people's lives, which you have no control of, of course. Just the thought of that is kind of scary, and and I think I think it's definitely pays at a certain point to just sort of switch off to it all and just go, yep, yeah, really nice that I saved you from a dark time, but you know I can't get emotionally 
invested in in your life or your story beyond just you know hearing you and and saying good on you and good luck because there's so many and and it and it just you know you you've only got so much emotional output to give so so you kind of got to limit it somehow mm. are you guys getting close to turning off your dms on, on instagram is, is that a thing or i'm sure maybe on, on facebook are you, are you still receiving messages to the Fitesky page yeah i mean we we sort of worked out a system of you know you can do automated responses and then sort of sift through things just in case there's anything you know worthwhile i mean there's lots of cool people who like genuinely just use Instagram now as their go-to means of communication. And yes. so, you know, there's been directors and artists and, and other people, collaborators that we've worked with who've just sort of reached out there. It's like, oh, geez, you don't want to miss those things. And if it becomes uh, the one, the first point of contact for people, I mean, I, I just never think to use Insta to message my friends. Yeah, I hate it when people do it. Or business, and I, I can't stand it. But but it's funny how much how many people actually do use Insta for that. So you kind of have to be, you know, just checking to make sure there's nothing legit in there that you don't want to miss. Yeah, I, I don't understand. I made a mind asking, bless him. He asked me about my knees. How's your knee? Yes, I was like, we message on WhatsApp, on Facebook Messenger, on text. We call. Why bring another a fifth one into it? You don't need this row, you know. Yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm not alone in this. The minute we start doing DMs on TikTok, I'm just like it's over. everything altogether. It's, a, it's game over, baby. So oh, sexy. No, that's how I felt when I got dragged into the WhatsApp world. I was like, no, not another one. But we're here now. It's all good. <laughs> he's, he's made it. He's made it. He's fine. In a moment, my friends, we're going to talk to Jeremy first, band manager of the Teskey Brothers, uh, Little Quirks, and Liz Stringer, owner, operator of the Bridge Hotel in Castleman. Is owners too much? Do you own that? Do you own the joint? Own the joint. Fantastic. And we're talking about, you know, everything. I should say some other stuff. And the other stuff is this. Please subscribe to Hit Different. You get bonus episode ahead of time. You could be living in the future now with my voice, your voice, all our voices. You're the voice. Try and understand it. Jeremy, we've arrived here at you, the man of the hour, the bell of the ball. Tell us what compelled you to start managing the Teskey Brothers. I had worked with managers a lot in different capacities. Uh, so I kind of knew what management was. Felt like I knew my way around it naively. It wasn't like I was just like the, you know, publican at the bar who sees something they like and thinks, oh, I could just totally change my whole career and and just nail that um i did have i did have background in it and so but i hadn't ever managed an artist directly myself so it was it was definitely a leap for me but it was my world already and um and you know they played a gig at some velvet morning i booked them for a, a residency and within the first song it was of the of week one it was just absolutely evident to me that this was an absolutely special thing. I mean, firstly, there was it was a packed bar, and they the way they came in was like most artists get to their gig a couple hours early, do a sound check, get set up, you know, have a little pregame, and and then do their show. These guys just like rolled in. I think Sam wasn't wearing shoes. 
Um, they just they sort of just c- carried their gear in. They were carrying like microphones and things that we already we we didn't need them to bring, but they just brought their own. And then they just plugged it all in. And then like 15 minutes later, they just started up, and it just sounded way better than every other gig we'd ever had in this bar. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know how they did that, but they seemed to be able to play their instruments very, very well and, you know, then started digging into the backstory and they'd been playing together for 10 years or so. So, you know, they, they had cut their teeth already and they were ready to play bigger shows and it just seemed to me criminal that they were playing, you know, at some Velvet Morning for 300 bucks. Um, <laughs> so I just said, look... I'm glad you did this. <laughs> I'm really glad you did this because it's good for my bar, but I, I would love to see you do better than this. And so we just started working together after that. That's amazing. I feel I feel very lucky to have seen the Teskey brothers around that period as well. I saw them play at uh, uh, the Wesley Ann in Northcote one night upon a friend's recommendation, probably around the same time. And just seeing them play big shows now, I feel very happy that I got in when I did so I can, uh, you know, tell 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 the tale. Mm. It, it was just it was a real word of mouth thing too wasn't it it's just because they playing so many shows and everyone was like talking about them and and that but that all that's great but that can lead to nowhere that can just be the band the southern river band where i was talking about them a few years ago <laughs> um i don't know where they're at now you know what i mean um so what 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 came next in terms of um yeah in terms of like sort of becoming a manager which you've never done before and what did you youtube how to be a manager how to what happened? <laughs> I mean, I got, I've got mentors in management, um, you know, friends and mentors. I think I definitely made a lot of calls at the time. Just put ideas out there and, and then see if anyone else had any ideas for me. Like the one thing that I really lacked was international contacts, but people that I respected, other artist managers that I respected, you know, looking at their careers and looking at the artist careers that they have fostered as is definitely that there's been an international focus. I'm a big believer in an artist in Australia can hit a glass ceiling and that glass ceiling can be pretty high. There are artists that kill it here, but and they will probably sustain a decent living out of it uh, by just touring in Australia. But there's very few who make it to that level. And if you really want to become more sustainable and long-term as a, as a career artist, I think you, you just have to look overseas and find other audiences that you can visit. You know, you can only tour Australia once or twice a year. So if you've got all that time off between tours, to be able to go other places is obviously a great thing. So I, I definitely was thinking internationally from the very start and didn't know what I was doing, didn't know people, but kind of strung together this little showcase tour where we went to L.A., New York and London and then came home and it was um, just all in one week and my thinking was like all right just get them in front of people and let the music do the talking because I I'm not friends with label heads in the US I I don't know those people but if I can just get them in the room then the music will do the talking and so we did that and I just remember it being such a hustle to get people to come along because I was just reaching out cold in a lot of way in a lot of times and and I was doing so much of that that I forgot to book like accommodation and huh. I forgot to like plan how we how we were getting around it was just huh. like I was so so focused on on getting people to those shows 
And so, look, we we actually did get some really great people to come along to in LA and New York, and and you know, one of them was a guy who worked at a label called Glass Note Records, and and then we ended up signing with that label, and and that performance, you know, at Rockwood Music Hall in New York was, you know, started kicked that whole relationship off. So, you know, it was it was just like that whole thing of like learning from others in just going overseas, showcasing, whether you showcase it at like a conference like South by Southwest or The Great Escape or you just go and do your own thing and just try and get industry down. If the band's good enough, then then you can get them along. Uh, that was my whole thing. But we were very lucky. I was so super lucky that my the massive gaps in my knowledge and phone book weren't so exposed and we just we just had a lot of luck from early on and, and the word of mouth thing kicked kicked off as well Mm. any other big learning curve moments in in the early days yeah i mean you just have to learn everything my background was in finance and so i knew how to do budgets i knew how to help with the business management side of things the part that i had to learn a lot about was just the touring and how to how to get around and how to like organize lights and and sound and and that sort of stuff just learning constantly about that and i'm still learning about it you know, we did it. We did a tour earlier this year, or a tour that just became one show. Actually, we did oh, one show dude. with Orchestra Victoria, but to to do a show with an orchestra was just like there was so many elements to that 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 I had to learn and 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 definitely stuffed up so many things. But <laughs> but ultimately, if you 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 quickly work out that everyone else around you kind of had the same experience early on in their career where they didn't know anything. And they're super grateful for the advice and the, you know, the help from others around. So they pass it back and, and you know, you just got to ask, you got to say, I don't know what I'm doing here. Can you explain this? And they're just like, oh, cool, totally. Let me just talk you through this. Um, so basically saying I don't know what I'm doing is is the best way to learn. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. How many members of the orchestra were there? 46. And where, where was the show that you played? Sydney Maya Music Bowl in January. And it was just like sort of the heart of Omicron kind of time. Mm. And we didn't really know if the gig was going to go ahead. And we'd sold all these tickets. I think we sold 8,500 tickets. And it was a very confusing, very confusing moment. And then, and then sort of it was one of the first big shows, I think, to happen in the country at the time. Yeah, it was kind of surreal. We were all there and there was 8,000 people on the hill and it was just very confusing. Yeah, hard to generate a really consistent vibe through that, but I'm sure as soon as Josh opens his mouth, you know, people kind of go, oh, I know why I'm here, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. I think gigs at the moment, there's just a huge sense of joy for everyone there, but only once they get there, you know? It's like it's not happening until it happens. And then once it's happening, everyone's like this sense of relief of like... Oh, we're actually here enjoying this, and now we can just let go, and 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 the music does its thing, and and, and we return to that that state that we used to be in all the time, where we, we would go and do this stuff all the time, and not even worry about whether it would happen or not. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's just like a whole underlying anxiety and relief that 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 process that goes along with every gig at the moment. Yeah, crowds are bang up for it at the moment too. There's the uh, the, the elation that everywhere you look, you know, all the smiles. It's just it's really quite something. Totally. You look at Instagram over the weekend. Crowded House were playing it in Melbourne, and it's just like everyone was just 
beaming to be yeah. there and sing yeah. along on yeah. mass. Yeah. Oh, they've got some really heartfelt sing-alongs as well, and I'm sure you know hearing some of those tracks coming back at a you know extremely loud volume. That's some healing shit right there. They've got some tunes. I'll give them. I'll give them that. They've got some tunes. Now the Teskey brothers are all on a set wage, which is genius. He used to be the the books bookkeeper for Unified. Is this correct? Yeah, I used to work at Unified, which is a management company, record label. Um, and prior to that, I was working. A company called White Sky, which did tour accounting and business management for tons of artists, tons of big, big artists. Um, so, kind of learnt a lot of processes and and things through that experience. And 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 just definitely managing money is is one of the hardest things for a band because there's big waves of income and there's big waves of outgoings as well. And and if you're not super across it and planning well ahead the outgoings can easily overtake the incomings and you think you're fine and then all of a sudden, shit, where did the money go? Yeah, like having having a set wage for the band members means that they can reliably tell their, you know, families and their bank and their mortgage <sighs> broker what they're going to be earning and how they can how they can pay their weekly costs and they can live like a semi-normal person financially um, even though you know when the business is 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 doing lots of different movements and and has a lot of upfront costs for a tour and and you know a lot of outgoings for a, a recording that won't come back from that recording for a long time possibly ever so you have to have sort of contingency plans and make sure that the money's not going to run dry so you have that have that wage which they can just rely on and then they don't worry about money. And when they're not worrying about money and when the artist isn't worrying about any is something it's 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 great because it's it's when they're worrying about it that you have to then sort of pay more attention to something and and, and so a wage is a really great set and forget way of, of, of managing money. You don't forget for obviously forever. You just check in once a month and go, How are we going? Are we running out of money? Or you know, what's changed and do we need to up the wage or down or drop the wage a bit to make sure that we don't run dry in six months' time? Last time I saw Josh Teske, admittedly, it was like a couple of years ago. He was, uh, after the interview I did with him, he was off to do some plumbing for somebody else. Is he still kicking around doing that or are those days well and truly behind them? <laughs> you know what? He still does it and it's just because he, he bloody loves it. Like, he, he, you can't stop him. How good. You can't stop him. He, he He's... He's just mostly just jobs for friends, but like he'll get in there, use his hands for a day, switch off, and it's just like a full escape for him. It's kind of like, you know, some people play golf, some people read books or whatever. It's like it's his, his, his escape, which I fully respect. I think it's cool. Mm. Probably would have come in handy during the pandemic as well when the guys were all on JobKeeper and the pandemic, which is still going, the pandemic is still, but, you know, during lockdowns, I'm sure he's probably going, I'm glad I pursued this. Yeah, well, plumbers were allowed, like, one of the few people who were allowed to be out on the road during that lockdown. So Josh is out there cruising around doing jobs when everyone else had to stay in, inside. Beautiful. That's karma right there, my friends. Uh, one more question for you before we uh, – is it job karma? It was, a bit of a, it was a bit of a stretch, wasn't it? Before we jump into the bonus episode with Jeremy, hearing the song Rain for the first time is quite a, a big moment for you. 
tell us about that? Yes. So this uh, this song's on the band's second studio album, Run Home Slow. They did a whole lot of songwriting sessions about a year before recording it. And so I remember it being about January in 2018. They recorded the album in December 2018. Um, and we use WhatsApp and the guys are just sent through you know, a Dropbox link. Oh, just, we just put this one in the Dropbox. What do you reckon? And I just distinctly remember this song and it was in a very primitive form. Like it didn't have all the beautiful horns and, and, and parts on it, but it just had this like really just, just stunning kind of soul groove. And, and Josh was just singing it. And it's just like, I just messaged straight back. I forwarded it on to Al Parkinson, who is my assistant in management, and and I just remember just saying to her, "This song is going to break the internet." And <laughs> and I found that WhatsApp message the other day, or not long ago, because I was like, "Did I actually do that? Did I actually say that?" Like it's such a cheesy thing to say, but then like. You look now at that song and the way people react to it, and there's all these reaction videos on YouTube of people just like just losing their minds, shaking their heads, their jaws are dropped. It's 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 obviously all drama, but it's 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 so funny that song how it just seems to bring tears and and make people stop in their tracks and and um and it definitely made me stop in my tracks the first time. Yeah. And Trayvon Free put out a tweet about it as well. God, hmm, but what if I mashed up Chris Hemsworth and Sam Cook? And he put up the, uh, the, the colours the colors clip of, of him singing Rain. You know, And that was the day Josh, he had a bit of a cold, I think. He, he, he only just hit the note and he kind of cracks the note cracks as well, and it, but it makes it even more real and authentic and fantastic. And Trayvon Free appeared on the uh, 180 Grams podcast which you can listen to all about the Teskey brothers too but uh yeah it's dope. I'm, I'm glad you've, you've you made the cheesy call that it was going to break the internet because you knew and I, I reckon you've never said that about anything else you've, you've been associated with so you held your one gonna break the internet call really well I thought yeah well the internet is broken now like if you just open twitter for for a minute you can just tell it's all broken <laughs> well yeah there's too many fuckwits online <laughs> We don't. We hey, don't Jeff, deserve. Jeff. We don't deserve the internet. We don't. We, don't. <laughs> we do not. Jez, you want to hang around? And do a little bonus episode with us about music that changed your life. Yeah, for sure. Different? Sick. All right, friends. Thanks for joining us this week. Thanks, Jeremy. First. Thanks, Milo. Thanks again. See you next week, fans. Woohoo!